ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Doing the weekly food shop can be an eye-watering experience. The cost of everything has gone up last year. Fresh fruit and veg is up 40% and cheaper sources of healthy food like canned tuna, frozen veg and even tinned tomatoes are also noticeably dearer. More expensive, everything's more expensive. I've just bought $90 worth of stuff and it fits in one basket. They'll end up getting cat food to eat. Probably about 450 a week. Double easy. It costs a family of four about $600 a fortnight to purchase a a healthy diet. Um, And that's about one third to a quarter of an income of someone who receives a low income in Australia. Worryingly, because food has got so expensive, some people in Australia are going hungry. But not only that, some are forfeiting eating themselves and choosing to feed their pets instead. We're going to have more on that soon. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. Better plan for a hot summer because the Bureau of Meteorology has finally confirmed it's the world's most consequential climate driver. The El Nino weather pattern is active over the Pacific for the first time in eight years. Tyne Logan joins me to explain and she's our national weather reporter. First, Tyne, tell me about this timing because there's been, there's been chat about this for a while. The World Meteorological Association had confirmed El Nino two months ago. What was BOM waiting for, the Bureau of Meteorology, that's the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, what were they waiting for to make this call? Oh, tell me about it. I feel like this has been hotly anticipated for <laughs> for a very long time Absolutely. now. Um, the Bureau of Meteorology was waiting to see, I guess, you know, to summarise it, a further um, signal in the atmosphere. So El Nino, by definition, is this interaction, a, a dance, I guess you could say, between both the ocean temperatures in the Pacific and the atmosphere above it. And without both of those two systems interacting, it is not an El Nino event and it won't be sustained. And so while other organisations have been looking at this ocean temperatures in the Pacific, which has been getting really incredibly warm, and there has been some pulses of the atmosphere coupling, that's why they've gone ahead and called it you know, a few months ago. But the Bureau of Meteorology has been a little bit more cautious, really wanting to see that strong coupling, which they say has now happened. Now for us, for the the average Joe, what does it mean for the summer to come? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in short, it means uh, an increased likelihood of hot, dry weather, um, increased chance of bushfires and increased chance of extreme heat. Should be noted, though, actually, the the while the event itself peaks in summer, its impacts in Australia are uh, strongest during spring. So that's the period that we're in right now. And how long does it tend to go for? Like, is there a timeline on it? Well, this is why it's one of the world's most consequential climate drivers, because it's such a prolonged event. It doesn't break down usually until autumn the next year. And that happens, you know, every single event. So you're looking at like nine months to a year of El Nino conditions. Now, I understand it was eight years ago that we had these conditions before. What was it like last time? Like what were the consequence of that? Yeah, El Nino is a funny one because no two events are the same. And if you look at the last event, that 2015 event, it was a really strong El Nino in terms of the ocean conditions. But in terms of its impacts in Australia, they actually weren't huge. There were some 
pockets that did experience that typical drier um, trend that you associate with El Nino, but it didn't lead to widespread drought. So I guess that goes to show even though it has this reputation, it's not always the outcome that you get. It's it's September now and there's some extreme heat on the eastern seaboard. Is that all connected to this? (laughs) Um, uh, Look, it's hard to say. El Nino... um, usually doesn't have impacts before it's officially declared. So um, by that token, I guess you would say no. But there is another climate driver underway at the moment uh, known as the Indian Ocean Dipole or a positive Indian Ocean Dipole, which is basically an El Nino but on the western side of the country in the Indian Ocean. And that may be having a um, an influence on the kind of hot weather that the southeast has been experiencing this last week. But ultimately, what's been driving that hot weather is this big, strong, high-pressure system that has just been stuck over eastern Australia and has not been moving like they usually would. So you've got El Nino and then you've got this Indian Ocean Diapole. Is there any rain related to either of these effects? Um, as in, do we get rain? Yeah. Uh, not really. Okay, <laughs> um, so it's the going to Indian be dry. Ocean, Yeah, the Indian Ocean Dipole, a positive phase of the Indian Ocean Dipole. It's not unusual to see them both together. And that has a dry, hot influence as well. And in fact, while El Nino's fingerprint is usually in the eastern states, a positive Indian Ocean Dipole influences South Australia, Western Australia, the Northern Territory, and also Victoria and Tassie. So all the places that didn't have the strongest influence from El Nino, do have a stronger influence from the positive Indian Ocean Dipole. So it exacerbates that dry signal. So that might explain when I saw a map that the El Nino, you know, who's this going to affect? The whole map was red. The whole map of Australia was red. Is that what that was about? uh, Probably. It's pretty much just the southwest of Western Australia. That seems to be the only region in Australia that is not typically influenced by either of those drivers. Very interesting. National weather reporter Tyne Logan, thanks for bringing us up to date. Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Residents of a remote Indigenous community off the North Queensland coast say life hasn't changed much for them in 50 years. But many Pam Islanders are hoping a voice to Parliament will be the change they need to turn things around. Jessica Norton reports from Cape York. Palm Island has a dark past of displacement and discrimination. It's a legacy that hangs over residents still today, like for Uncle Edward Walsh. From my time of growing up, like from a kid, from when I was a kid, it was really, really tough. You didn't ever say could not leave this island without a permit from the white man. We had a white superintendent, a white overseer. And if you want to get on a boat and go to town, you have to get a permit to do that. I've been brought up with the white man telling me what to do, you know, from day one. Six o'clock, you're back home in bed, and the bell rings, and you get off the street, so you go to jail for two weeks. This is in the 60s, I was a kid. It was a bad time, man. It's not happening anymore, but it could, it could happen, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's not happening like that, but it still is happening, the government say, and the government says, we think that we should do this for these people on Palm Island. And so with the voice, I think, we're going to go with it. You know, let the rest of the world know that uh, Australia is thinking about the Aboriginal people of this country. You know, That way, we could, we could talk to the government, tell the government, look, I think you should be doing things this way. This is what we need. 
this is what we want. You know, like some some of these some of these stuff that the way they're going now, we not we don't have a say. So we get we might have a few Aboriginal politicians down there. So they're there, they're representing Aboriginal people, but they're not really. They're they're representing places where they come from. I'm from Palm Island. I've got no one there in government representing me, you know what I mean? Uncle David Ryan was born on Palm Island in 1943. He's wondering why a voice hasn't already happened. A lot of questions shouldn't never be asked of the Aboriginal people of this country, because it's normal. We live here, we're born here. Should have been in place from day one. I'll support the vote if it's saying to my people, yes, you are this country, not part of it. You are this, we are this country. And that means a lot, particularly for Palm, given Palm's history? Uh, yes, but I'm sticking up for the whole of the country, not just part of it. Palm Island is part of the whole country. Whilst not all residents on the island are convinced of a voice, Bookerman woman Professor Lenore Geyer believes a no vote will be a setback for community. If the no campaign you know, succeeds, then where are we? We are still, we're even worse off than the status quo, you know? The voice to me and to many in community is a path of hope. I just believe that a no answer will be just another level of sorry business for us that will be so profound that it would take away some of our hope that we were ever going to have that liberation as a people and empowerment as a people, you know? A no vote for Palm Island will mean we are stuck here again. And that's not what we want, you know? We don't want to take people's homes. We don't want to take people's land. We have our beautiful island, you know? We share our land. And a yes vote for us means that we can grow and develop. And we can be, I always call us a jewel in the ocean. We can be that jewel, you know? And that jewel is our children and our generations and Palm Island just being out there living a fruitful and and just a a life that's full of hope. For the Palm Island Aboriginal Shire Council, Mayor Mislam Sam, the view on The Voice is about the future. The biggest challenge facing Palm is basically an opportunity for a job and moving forward. I think if any community was, you know, suffering with 70% unemployment, um, you're going to have the social stats going against you. Look, I have a very positive view on it because I can see from decades of working in community, we've, we've let the systems go on and on for far too long and I think without even being taken seriously, we really need to change the way we're going because I can see... Um, are still spiralling out of control in terms of our social disadvantage and um, we need to change the game on that because the next generation of young Bulgarman kids are going to be affected time and time again. Without us being in control or having a direct say in how things are running in communities, forever we're going to be at the mercy of those that are in control of things to do the right thing. I think it'll give us a direct link and access so we can put our initiatives forward to gain the support 
because who better to know what's needed locally on the ground? And from all my dealings within representatives of The Voice, that's what it's all about. It's grassroots initiatives to actually make the change because the cost in you know, dealing with some of the social disadvantage is continually rising. So our sort of mantra within council right now is about how we can do things differently that reaches the mark and makes us self-reliant into the future. With enrolments now closed and weeks out from the referendum date of October 14, the Yes Vote continues to trail the No campaign in recent polling. Jessica Naunton reporting there from Cape York off the North Queensland coast. Now, the ABC did speak to some community members on Pam Island who did not support The Voice but did not want to be interviewed. Some told the ABC they were sceptical of any new government policies, while others were concerned about who the representatives on the advisory body would be. You're listening to Australia Wide. They've terrorised our poor sheep. They've terrorised our peacocks. Chased away all our chickens. Yeah, it's been... Bit hectic. <laughs> um, yeah, they're reasonably commonish as far as snakes go here around the resort. On ABC Radio. Vulnerable pet owners are being put in a tough position as the cost of living crisis puts vet visits and their animals' medicine out of reach. When the choice is sacrificing your own meals or your pet's health, somebody is guaranteed to come off worse and the consequences are being felt around the country. And as our reporter in Wimmera, Angus McIntosh, found out, it can be heartbreaking for vets and animal owners alike. Max! Max! Come on, come here. Good boy. Chris McMillan lives in Bulgana, 220 kilometres northwest of Melbourne, with her dog Max. He's been her only companion since the loss of her husband and daughter in an accident six years ago. But as the two of them have grown older together, the cost of keeping Max has forced Chris to make some serious sacrifices. I don't have any income at all now, and there are times when I sort of look at the budget and I think. Uh, Max's medication's more important, so I occasionally skip a meal to, to make sure that I've got sufficient money to pay for his medication. Chris pays more than $200 a month on Max's heart medication, and she's not alone. National Veterinary Association President Dr Diana Barker says vet visits are down 10% nationwide as pet owners are pushed to choosing between their pet's well-being and their own. What we're seeing is that people are making that decision to not spend the money today and potentially do the the necessary care later down the track. The problem that we see with that is that in the meantime, the pet's health can deteriorate and can result in worse outcomes for their pets. Chris's region of Ararat was flagged as an animal cruelty hotspot by the Victorian RSPCA this year. It's seen a 20% spike in animal seizures due to cruelty or neglect this financial year, and it's the sixth straight annual rise. The total has more than doubled in that time. Dr Barker says there's no relief in sight, as vets' hands are tied on the cost of pet medicine. Most veterinary clinics try to keep their costs down and investigate discounts that they can, they can get from their wholesalers, but the cost of pet medicines is much more expensive than human medicines by virtue of the fact that we don't have the PBS. In the absence of any relief, Chris says she'll keep putting Max's needs above her own. My choice is to to have a wonderful companion that's with me 24-7 and if he wasn't here, there wouldn't be much quality of life for me either. 
like everybody, we all get old and the dogs and that um, need medical treatment at times and he improves my quality of life, whereas without Max I've virtually got nothing. The loving owner of Max, Chris McMillan, speaking to our reporter Angus McIntosh. And you're listening to me, Sinead Mangan, on Australia Wide. And remember, you can listen to Australia Wide whenever you want to. You can subscribe to our podcast. You just head to the ABC Listen app, search Australia Wide, and you will find us there. And if you can hit subscribe, we'd really appreciate it. You're listening to Australia Wide. It's a species that I have been fighting for. Growing up in the bush is such a special thing. So when the rain does come, we've, we've got a few numbers. Well, got it a... never comes. Put a feather in your cap. ABC Radio. A Queensland photography project is putting veterans and their humanity in centre frame. The Reluctant Heroes Project has captured more than 50 veterans from all walks of life, sparking conversations about service, sacrifice and mental health. North Queensland reporter Lily Nuffling has this story. In a powder blue safari suit, rainbow bow tie and bushy handlebar moustache, Lindsay Mariner isn't the picture of a typical veteran. My last day in the army was May the 4th, 2022. So May the 4th, the force was with me because on May the 5th it wasn't. After four decades of service, the Townsville veterans suffered a breakdown and discharged with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was mentally beaten down quite a bit. I couldn't shake it off in the end. So this is me rebuilding. It's what led him to sit for his portrait as part of the Reluctant Heroes photography project. Since I've had my breakdown and I'm so much more open with my life and how I previously hid my stuff... This is an opportunity to continue that, to extend it. I've changed from being secretive about it to being open about it and being open about it has helped me immensely. Over the past three years, Queensland photographer and veteran Mick Jones has photographed more than 50 ex-service personnel from all walks of life. He came up with the Reluctant Heroes Initiative as a way to give back to the veteran community. A lot of veterans, we all go through different phases of mental health issues and that sort of stuff. And I think a strong portrait of someone helps that process sometimes. But he knows for many, getting in front of the camera can be intimidating. We might have a, a cup of tea or a, a biscuit or even a, a beer, depending on what, what the situation is. And sometimes we sit there for 20 minutes and they're comfortable to, to start the process. Um, or they may be there, in some cases we've been there for an hour and a half. They probably know before they... Before they come, I'm, I'm a veteran anyway, so it's always going to be a, an easier conversation than a complete stranger that's got no idea of what we're doing. But yeah, some of the conversations we have are quite deep sometimes. Um, the families often come with the people that are being photographed and they contribute to the conversation. And sometimes it becomes almost like a, I won't say a counselling session, but a bit of an opportunity to talk about some experiences where I don't promote that. I just sort of sit there and listen. And um, sometimes I've had some messages and conversations with the family saying that, you know, dad or my husband or whatever has never sort of spoken to people about that sort of stuff for a long time or before. When Jan Scott received the photographs of her Vietnam veteran husband, Rob, she was overwhelmed. I burst into tears. (laughs) If we'd ever have a fire, and God forbid we never do, that would be one of the things I would grab, besides the dog. Her husband faced backlash in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, 
and later grappled with PTSD and health problems. He was photographed in their home wearing his motorcycle club leathers. That's the Rob we see. A lot of people don't see that. And Mick just seems to be able to have that knack to catch the essence of that person. They traded insults. They traded stories. They felt comfortable right from the word go. And that's why we've got the photos. So it's just so beautiful. Jan Scott wants to see more veterans take part in the Reluctant Heroes Project. We've been trying to talk all the guys down at the club to go and have their photos taken. Oh, no. Nobody wants to do that. Why would someone want a photo of me? And, and they don't call themselves heroes. They're just ordinary blokes that did extraordinary things in extraordinary times. And they are extraordinary photos. That's Jan Scott, the wife of Vietnam veteran Rob Scott, ending that story by Lily Nuthling. And if you'd like to see those photos, do check them out on the Australia-wide website. Lily's stories there on ABC Online. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia-wide. Like, say, the swimming carnival, I can tell them about how, like, the races are. And as well, um, there's a big carnival, like, where we show our house colours. You've never done that before? Um, no, not really, no. And finally, to a story that you may have missed out hearing earlier today on AM. It was so lovely, I thought I'd play it again. It turns out a skill Australia is short on is piano tuning. And one music teacher is so worried about it, she's teamed up with the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra to come up with a possible solution. Georgie Burgess prepared this report. It's practice time in Jodie Hill's Hobart Piano Studio. And she's explaining how a grand piano is tuned. So, and if I strike the piano, you can see a hammer comes up and hits the string and then a damper goes down and stops the sound. She's been teaching for 50 years and keeping her pianos and budding concert pianists sounding grand requires a highly qualified piano tuner. It's a little bit comparable with Formula One racing that there we, we need... Um, top-line mechanics who can work in that specialised area, as well as those sort of mechanics who can do everyday cars very well. Um, we're at the situation, in certainly in southern Tasmania, where there's a lack in both areas. And that's left just one person in southern Tasmania with the specialist skills to maintain concert pianos. But just at the moment, there really is, at the highest level, only one practicing person that we who, and he does those pianos and that's why we realized that we were at a critical point because he's coming very close to retirement. Dr Hield took her concerns to the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra. Its CEO is Caroline Sharpen. So in a concert week um, we would have probably four rehearsals and then a concert and the pianos need to be tuned before and after each of those rehearsals and on the concert day of course but also during the concert, if there's a piece needing piano before interval and after interval, then it would be touch-tuned and uh, kept really perfect. The man doing that job is Rod Collins. I guess the tr- real trouble arises when, when Rod's not available or he's away on holidays. And often um, we're very short of people and have to fly somebody in from Sydney or Melbourne. To try and solve the problem, the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra is offering a scholarship to train two piano tuners and put them to work in Tasmania. Caroline Sharpen says finding somewhere to send them wasn't easy. Well, interestingly, over the last 30 years, all of the courses where you would go to learn how to 
tune piano's voice and regulate piano's have gradually wound down. And at the time of our inquiry, there was really only one still operating, and that was in Western Sydney. There are a couple of other piano tuners in southern Tasmania who go to homes, schools and churches. But finding someone to tune a grand piano is more difficult. What we really need is that pipeline of people coming through into the profession that can look after instruments that have often been in families for generations, uh, all the instruments of schools, our university, and then, of course, the great concert instruments of Tasmania, like the ones here at the TSO. The scholarship recipients will spend 10 months learning the basics of piano tuning before bringing their skills back to Tasmania. A piano is only as good as the preparation that it's had, as well as, the, of course, the instrumentalist that plays it. It seemed to attract a lot of um, very, very interesting artists and actors and people to live here. We haven't been able to get a new piano tuner. <laughs> Isn't that so relaxing to listen to? Georgie Burgess reporting there from Hobart in Tasmania. And that's Australia-wide for this Tuesday. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.